uh, we've already kind of talked about it a little bit before. Maybe some of you came in. Um, the back of this packet is some of the selected works that I've used on really throughout this, this whole study. So um, going through the history of the Old Testament, uh, this does not come out of my own head. Um, I consult many, many works to get these, sometimes taking their exact words and sometimes reframing them in my own words or sometimes writing my own sentences. Um, but all of it is being informed at least by the works that you see here. Uh, it was already asked how, what ones that I lean on most prominently. A lot of the commentaries that you'll see listed there, some of them are not commentaries, but some of them are. You'll see them typically listed as commentary or part of a commentary set. Um, I think I would commend to you on the popular level anything by Dale Davis is worth consulting and worth reading. He's very um, down-to-earth. He's very easy to understand and, um, and I think very helpful. Did we lose everybody online? Is everybody online still there? Oh, okay. They're just not on the screen. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I just, as long as I have the slide behind me, that's good. Um, so basically tonight, I, I'm hopeful this will work. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this goes, but um, I thought it was an opportune time to, to really do this. I want to remind you that next week is VBS, so typically we don't do, uh, we don't have Wednesday night meeting during VBS week because it can really tax the workers that are coming up here already during the morning to come up here in the afternoon or the evening. And so we won't do it next week, and then the week after that, I'll be gone at a convention, so uh, we won't be doing it that week either. Um, so the Southern Baptist Convention is the following week, so I'll be, I'll be there. So it, for the next two weeks, we won't be meeting on Wednesday night. Um, I hope you'll be able to make it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure you will. Uh, but tonight, uh, what we're going to do, I, I want to just remind you of where we were over the last couple of weeks. You remember that um, in we, we, last week I, I said that 841 is likely that time at least around or right around the time when you get the earliest writers, uh, writing prophets, to come onto the scene, namely what, we, what I think. Uh, Merrill also is one that would think this is, as well. Obadiah and Joel probably come onto the scene right about now. Um, the reason we think that is not because Obadiah and Joel declare themselves in their, their year. They actually don't at all do that. They just allude to certain instances happening. So Obadiah condemns the nation of Edom for just sitting by and sitting idly by while Jerusalem is ransacked and uh, their possessions are hauled off. And Obadiah uh, makes mention of this and that, that at least that exact thing happened in and around 841 B.C., with the, the uh, end of Jehoram's reign. And so uh, it makes sense then that Edom is probably talking about that particular scene and pronouncing condemnation on Edom for that. We don't know how long after that happened that, that Obadiah is pronouncing judgment on them. So, you know, it could be, who knows, some years later that he's doing that. I don't know. But uh, it's probably about that time that he's talking. And then the other is Joel. Joel mentions uh, a couple of things. He mentions uh, a famine that comes into the land that God is pronouncing is a judgment 
to the north and, and southern kingdoms predominantly. And um, there is a big famine that took place in 852 to 845 BC that we read about in 2 Kings that, uh, that w- definitely impacted the, southern, the northern and southern kingdoms, though we hear more about the northern kingdom. Uh, in fact, Elisha recommends that a widow move out of the kingdom altogether and into the land of the Philistines in order to stave off and be protected from this, this famine. And, um, and then, so we read about that in Joel, that it was not just a famine, that was part of it, but also a famine that was coupled with an invasion of locusts that came in. And then it seems also evident as you read the book of, of Joel that potentially it's not just a plague of locusts that are coming in, but then also an invading army that's also coming in that mirrors the plague of locusts. So if you can imagine being stricken with a famine and then a plague and then a military conquest uh, all at the same time, eventually you start to wonder, God, what are you doing? And we see along the way that there is some repentance that seems to come about from perhaps some of the northern kingdom and maybe even some of the southern kingdom as well. And that seems to be mirrored also in the book of Joel. And so we talked about all of those things last week. And so this week, what are we going to do? We're going to kind of take just a little bit of a pause on the timelines and all of that. And what we're going to talk about tonight is irrespective of timeline in the sense of when Joel occurred and all that kind of stuff. But we are going to spend some time in the book of Joel. And the reason that I want to do this is because we're quickly going to be approaching a lot of the writing prophets. And one of the most difficult things that you can possibly do is to read and interpret the Old Testament prophets. They are often very challenging. Sometimes they refer to things and make analogies and, uh, and illustrations and things like that that don't make tons of sense to us, that we have to really dig and really work to understand. Sometimes they make reference to places and things that we're not familiar with. And then sometimes they bring out concepts that are really difficult to wrap our minds around. And so one of those concepts that goes through a lot of the prophets is this phrase that they'll bring up from time to time, the day of the Lord. And it'll, it'll be that sort of mention that is on the horizon. You get the sense that it is something on the horizon, that it is coming, and that to some extent it is something to be feared as the way it's presented. The day of the Lord will come. And there's a lot of things that come with that. There's a lot of weeping, there's a lot of uh, mourning, there's a lot of lament, and there's a lot of moons being turned to blood and clouds being darkened and suns and all that kind of stuff that comes with a lot of that stuff. So you get the, in the sense that what's being described as the day of the Lord is something to be feared. And so what I want to do tonight is really just begin to unpack some of that. And we're not going to be able to unpack the whole, the whole thing. But it is as we get into some of the writing prophets, it is starting to touch on some of those concepts so we can talk about them more times than just once. right? And what I think that that does, as we start to try to understand what the prophets are saying, in this case Joel, but we'll cover a lot of them, as we start to understand what the prophets are saying, it can help us to understand the New Testament what some of the New Testament writers are picking up on and what they're saying, and then actually get us into Revelation and things like that, uh, more 
kind of maybe complex things or things in the New Testament that sort of confuse us. Um, there is my, my plan if, uh, let me put a whole bunch of caveats out there. The plan, if COVID part two doesn't happen, all right, that's one, that's one caveat. If I don't die, um, if, if we're all still here and everything is going as normal for the next, let's say, three, few years, um, then my plan is to finish the Old Testament. That's, that'll take us a while to go through the rest of the Old Testament. To get into the, what we call intertestamental history, which is the period between Old Testament and New Testament. It's like 400-some years of history that just is really not in our Bibles. And I want us to kind of unpack what's happening there so we can see all the politics and stuff like that at, at work. Um, and then... Uh, get into the New Testament and start unpacking doing the, basically the same thing for the New Testament that we're doing currently in the Old Testament. Part of that's going to include us bridging the gap as we get into the New Testament. What is this author really doing with the Old Testament? How are they talking about the Old Testament, interacting with it? Part of that's going to include getting to the book of Revelation. So like eight years from now, when we get into the book of Revelation, <laughs> we'll be making reference back to some of the things that I'm talking about tonight. So just remember this for the next eight to ten years, all right? If you forget it past that, uh, I'll forgive you. But anything inside eight years, if I make it there, you, you'll be accountable for it, okay? <laughs> so uh, that's kind of the, the tentative plan. That's what I'm hoping to do on Wednesday night. Uh, come hell or high water, which, as we found out in the last year, could come. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so there we go. So tonight, what I want to do is start to talk about this phrase and, and the way Joel is using this phrase, Day of the Lord, what he's prophesying about, and how we understand that prophecy coming to fulfillment. And what is, uh, what, what, what should we expect? What are we expecting, and, and that kind of thing, how should we read, in other words, Joel, and how does that actually apply to a New Testament congregation like us? How do we read the prophets, and not only understand them, but then actually read them to benefit us in any kind of way, which uh, hopefully will help and not hurt and not confuse, maybe. So, throughout the prophets, not least of which is uh, in Joel 2, the entire chapter of chapter 2. In fact, if you have an e a copy of the ESV, you'll see, at, and I don't know about the NIV, maybe they probably have a very similar heading, but at the very top of Joel chapter 2 in the ESV, you see it labeled there, the day of the Lord. And virtually the entire chapter is concerning this um, really kind of day of the Lord, the fulfillment of this prophecy that Joel gives. And so the day of the Lord is basically, uh, as we understand it in Joel and throughout some of the other prophets, is a day, it's referring to a time, when Yahweh is going to step into human history and He is going to intervene. And in the process of intervening, there are really two things that he's going to do. One, he's going to deal with all the hostile elements that are in the world. So they're going to be swept away, right? Then there's also um, the enemies of the Lord themselves, the people, uh, individuals. So not just Satan, beast, and false prophet type 
type thing, dealing with Satan himself as a hostile enemy, but also the people who are sinners against a moral God are going to be judged. All right? And they're going to be dealt with and punished. And so, it's really the day of the Lord. It's associated with an end times judgment. We're really looking at the end of all things. What, what, what do we expect in the end? How does the end actually shape up? And what happens as a result of the day of the Lord? The time when He comes and He deals with His enemies, and especially those who didn't acknowledge His sovereignty don't acknowledge Him as Lord, don't follow Him. This is seen, obviously, in the Old Testament, targeting the Gentiles, right? Because they're the ones that are not in the family of God, as it were. Um, but it's also Israel, too. Inasmuch as there are people who are refusing to follow the Lord in the company of Israel, they also will be put to death. And swept away as a hostile enemy. Korah's rebellion. You might think of that when they rebelled against Moses and the earth opened up and swallowed them whole. And um, People in that sort of camp um, exist throughout time. There are people that are, are not his people that are considered Israel and are kind of wrapped up into that and they are going to be dealt with as well. But when you think of the term day of the Lord, the reason that it's referred to as that is because, very simply, it's a day where God comes to vindicate himself. Right? It's very easy to think about it that way. It's a day when God comes to vindicate himself. It's his day. Right? Just, just imagine for just a second, we're, we're all sitting here one day, and the roof on this place just blows off completely. And all of a sudden, we are standing under open skies, right? We didn't install an, a, a, you know, an open roof dome here, but imagine that happened. And when we look up in the sky, all the clouds just part. The sky opens up, and there we see... A giant throne. So high in the air and so giant and so... Uh, the only word I know how to describe it would be glorious, maybe bright or so shiny. Uh, is it that everyone in the world all at one time can see it? All right? Yeah, amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let that happen right now, right? <laughs> be a good thing. Okay. Yeah. So, just imagine that that happens. Uh, what kind of day in court is that for God? Right? Imagine every atheist you've ever encountered, you've ever heard on the internet, you've ever read in the newspaper, every atheist you've ever talked to, uh, ever, is now standing there seeing the same thing you're seeing. Their roofs have all been blown off. And they are seeing the same kind of sun-like appearance, S-O-N-like appearance, in the clouds as you are. Uh, is that a day of vindication for God? <laughs> sure it is. It's His day. Um, 
and every eye will see him. There will be weeping and lamentation from some. Because at that moment, all of the atheists will realize all at once we were wrong. The price now has to be paid. Right? So very simply put, the day of the Lord is that. It's a day where God vindicates himself. Okay? And not only does God vindicate himself, what then happens to all of those people who were loyal to him in not only belief in, but obedience to his son, Jesus Christ? What happens to them? Well, it's really your day too, if that's you. You're vindicated as well. Because you're the crazy Christian that lives on the corner that doesn't have all the, maybe all the channels on cable TV or doesn't, you know, spend all your money on this, that, and the other, but gives money to churches and things like that, and that's crazy, why would you do that? And, and, and then, you know, does all kinds of other things like homeschool your children, what, what in the world are you doing, or, or caring about your children's education, or whatever it is, you know. Um, you're the crazy one that does that. You live your life different and weird, and you don't participate in all the things that we participate in, and why would you do that? Why wouldn't you eat, drink, and be merry? Because tomorrow you're going to die. You're vindicated too. Right then and right there, everybody on your street goes, that's why they did that. That's why they live that way. Ah, get it now, right? So, it's a day of vindication for the Lord and all of those who are associated, loyal to His name. All right. Now, all right. So, in the first part of the book of Joel, um, the prophet seems to apply part of the locust plague that he's talking about to the day where God is vindicated. So he's immediately going, you see these locusts that are coming in, or that are going to come in? God is going to vindicate himself, right? So immediately we start to understand that the day of the Lord is not only that day where the roofs blow back and the Lord is in the air, right? And where everybody sees. No, no. It's a, what we would call, telescoping fulfillment. That there are some parts of this that are close up. Plague of locusts, let's say. How does a plague of locusts vindicate God? Well, here is a group of people in the northern kingdom and the south who are associated with each other in Joel's day and who have gone about in complete rebellion to the Lord altogether. And they have ignored His law and they have rejected His prophets. And so, here comes a plague of locusts. Here comes an army. Here comes a famine. And, well, you're going to suffer for... if. Joel is written in the time I think it is, you're going to suffer for at least seven years. Plus, some more if you're in the north as that invading army of the Assyrians uh, comes in and in, in, invades. 
And so in Shalmaneser 3, he's going to come in and he's going to invade too and he's going to be a northern army and, and well, you're going to face the wrath of God. This is a day where God is vindicated. You have broken your covenant with Him and so He is going to punish you and He is being vindicated. His name is being vindicated in front of His people. So this is kind of like a day of the Lord. But then it's, it's not only the day of Joel that He's going to be referring to. And so part of it is going to be connected to this locust plague here. Now, why? What, what is Joel going to do? Well, in the, in the process, in the book of Joel, you can look at uh, Joel 2, uh, 12 to 13. He says, this is, he, he's sort of done a lot of this uh, prophesying, and, and he gets to this uh, in verse 12. Joel 2, 12. It's also in your verse packet if you have it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Listen to this. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So here's a prophecy of disaster that's coming where God is going to vindicate His own name. However, if... Now, in the meantime, you, in anticipation of that coming, you rend your heart, to rend is to tear, you rend your heart and not your garments. When someone fasts or mourns, they, you'll see this frequently in the Old Testament, they tear their garments, right? They tear their clothes and they put on sackcloth and they put on ashes. The sackcloth is meant to replace their, their soft clothing that feels good against the skin it's meant to replace that with something that's abrasive so that they, they're not allowed anything but suffering. You can imagine wearing a burlap sack all day, how that would eventually feel as it would chafe your skin, right? So they're basically putting themselves in that situation because they're not allowing themselves any luxury. And then they put on the ashes on their head because obviously when you get dirty, you want to take a bath. They're not even allowing themselves to bathe, Right? And they disfigure themselves to, to remind themselves, I am in mourning over this proclamation of judgment. But God says, dispense with all that. I want you to do that to your heart. I want your heart to be that way. I don't care anything about your shirt. I don't care if you put on a burlap sack. I don't care if you put on the ashes on your head. I want your heart to be that way. Tear your heart. Be brokenhearted over this. And if so then the disaster won't come to you. All right. So he's asking for repentance. He, in fact, begs and pleads them for repentance. Why? Because, well, they've breached the covenant. And um, if you disregard the punishment from the Lord, you're breaking the covenant. So uh, consider Deuteronomy 28 uh, 23 and Amos 4, 7 and 9. Let me get there. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, uh, 23 to 24 and verse 38. And the heavens over you, uh, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make it make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come on you until you're destroyed. Verse 38, you shall carry much seed into the field 
and shall gather little, for the locusts shall consume it. So he's basically saying, look, all, the, all the, these plagues are a specific chastisement, a specific punishment for you breaking your covenant with me. So I want you instead to tear your hearts over that and come back to the covenant, right? And if you do and you repent in that direction, in that way, then the disaster won't come to you. So uh, he's telling them this is what it means to repent. By the way, this is what it means in New Testament time too, to repent. To, to some extent, at least, there's a straight correlation. That we often think of repentance as synonymous with confession. That I confess my sin. This is sinful, whatever I've done, right? And this is transgressing what Christ has told me to do. I've specifically broken a commandment of his, and I've transgressed. I've gone a different direction. But, but that's confession. That's not repentance. Repentance is rending your hearts and coming back into obedience. So not just laying aside or, or confessing the, the sin, but it's laying it aside and turning around and walking back the other direction and moving toward uh, the God of the new covenant. Oh, sorry, that's a, that's a Zoom thing uh, to admit someone into the room that's beeping in. So, sorry, ignore that. Um, all right. And that's a chime saying they're here. So, welcome. Uh, <laughs> uh, the internet, we gotta love it. Uh, all right. So, essentially what has, what, what, what's happened is the people have transgressed the covenant and the plague is coming in as a result of that. And he's, Joel is telling them, the day of the Lord is coming in a near sort of way in this plague of locusts designed to bring you to repentance and bring you back, okay, to the Lord. Now, it's obvious at some point, or it seems apparent, that at least... I got, can you click on the keynote thing? Come to me. Help me, help me, help me, Lord. There we go. Okay. Um, the, it seems at some point in Joel's prophesying that the people of, uh, that he's preaching to, probably the people of Judah, have acted on his pleas and they've come together in lamentation and basically held a, you might say, service of lamentation and repentance where they've confessed their sins and they've rent their hearts and they're turning and coming back and there is a response that get, where he gives sort of a favorable prophecy indicating that a lot of the danger that was coming to them is over and that there is a, a better things to come on the other end of this, of this prophecy. So we see this in, in Joel 2, 18-27. I won't read it all, but you'll get the flavor of it a little bit. So it says, Then the, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So notice this is written in the past tense. So obviously, well, it seems apparent, maybe this is not true, maybe this is overstepping my bounds, but I think this is right, that it's probably written not all at once, right? There is a prophecy that's recorded, it was acted upon, and then there is an amendation to the text, or a, a, maybe by the pen of Joel, let's say, who says, what happened? The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, that, and you will be satisfied, and I will, 
no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. I, I think... As we talked about last week, there's probably a couple of different things. One, the locust coming in. He's going to dispense with the locusts. But then also, I think also a northern, an actual northern physical army is also going to be dispensed with and, and set aside. And sort of the locusts play that the image of the, of the uh, actual invading army as well, if it's in the time where we think it is. Um, so, what is, he, what is he getting to? He, he actually says, not only is this going to be, because you've repented, not only is this going to be a time of blessing for you, but also, uh, or, or not only is it going to be a time of ending of the plague, but it's also going to be a time of blessing, a material blessing for you, where you're going to have things that you didn't have before. And he says, you shall know, in verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none, none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. All right. So, we see this sort of uh, fulfillment a little bit, right? That, and, and God's saying, okay, this is coming to an end. And there's going to be some material blessing on the other side of this. But there is something that else that Joel is looking forward to. Remember we said telescoping, right? What that means is there's a, a near fulfillment, there's a more distant fulfillment, there's a more distant fulfillment from that. Okay, so near, locusts are going to go away, invading army is going to go away, there's going to be a restoration of the land. You're not going to be in a famine anymore. You're going to have crops, right? And, uh, but, but there's something else that's on the horizon. Uh, beyond this reality, there is the expectation of an ultimate blessing coming where there is going to be an outpouring of a prophetic spirit upon all people which Joel sees as to be a fulfillment of this divine blessing that he's talking about here, where he will, God is going to, by His grace, give His people this intimate awareness. What are they going to be aware of? Well, where they were before was they were disregarding His covenant, His will, they were breaking His law. But there's going to be a time where He pours out His Spirit on them and they're going to know His will. They're not going to have to guess it, they're going to know it. They're going to be connected to it. They're going to want to be associated with the Lord, and they're not going to leave. They're not going to break the, the covenant altogether. They're going to stay with the Lord. There's going to be a day where God pours out His Spirit on people, and that will happen. Um, and so, he goes on to say that his people are going to be, in that day, kept safe in the holy city. And there's going to be a storm that's going to basically rage against the nations that disregard God's uh, will. There's going to be a, a day, if you will, of punishment. So the day of the Lord is going to now look like what Joel says, okay, day of the Lord, one, near, locusts, you're disobeying the Lord, He's coming, He's going to bring in an army. 
Second day of the Lord. There's going to come a day where he's going to pour out his spirit and his people are going to want to obey him and he's going to deal with all the rest of you. But don't, right? And um, so in Joel 3, 17, we see a little bit of a, a, a glimpse of this. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. So no covenant lawbreakers, no people that are strangers to the covenant at all. It's all going to be people that are known. And the temple, or the earthly home of Yahweh, is going to be a fount of His benediction, His good favor, and it's going to be the focal point of His saving presence. Okay. So in Joel's day, all they really ever get is a partial fulfillment of this promise. Joel gives these big promises of blessing, and the people that he preaches to really don't ever see it. Not at least in full. They see a reprieve from the famine. They see the locusts turning away. They see armies turning away. But they never get the fulfillment of what Joel is talking about. Now, here's where things get a little muddy. Because when we talk about end times, I'm going to tell you what, in the church, as soon as you mention end times, apocalypse, uh, eschatology, as soon as you mention it, it becomes a bone of contention with so many people. And Nothing frustrates me more than people that get frustrated over things that we don't totally know, right? I get really frustrated by that, okay? So let's avoid that, all right? Um, there is a particular branch of theology, let's call it. You're familiar with it, even if you may not know the term, that I think, in my estimation, does something a little funny with this interpretation, dispensationalism. Um, tends to view the true fulfillment of this prophecy of Joel about a day where this holy city is protected and there's a saving presence and uh, no stranger and all, all of this kind of stuff um, as a future millennium, that there's a day in the future uh, that will be for a thousand years where that will be kind of a protected and sacred age. And potentially when you read the prophet Joel, you can come to that conclusion as well. You can have in your mind that kind of future millennium, and, um, and you, can, um, you can come to that conclusion, or you can be thinking in that direction. But the New Testament is going to step in here and is going to instruct us on how to read the prophet Joel in two places. Uh, first, Peter is going to do it in the book of Acts, and then second, Paul is going to do it in Romans. So in Acts 2... 14 to 21, let's look at that. We won't read it all because some of it's a quote from Joel, but um, actually, before we do the Acts, let me, let me uh, read this, this section of Joel here. Joel 2, 28 to 32. Did I include that on your handout? It's there. I think it's in probably the first little bit there. Uh, it's probably in the first citation of Joel 2. I've got all of Joel 2 there, so... Just look at, at on that first big section there, 28 to 32. 
And it shall come to pass afterward that I shall... Po- after what? After, so there's this plague of locusts, right? And the armies and all this kind of stuff. It shall come to pass afterward, after all of this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So moon will be turned to blood, sun will be turned to darkness in that day when I pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And I think when we hear those terms in the prophets and probably to some extent, rightfully so, we go, whoa, moon, blood, sun, darkness. Well, that's got to be what we were talking about at the beginning. The roof blows back, clouds part, everything's gone, sun turns to darkness, moon turns to blood, whatever, and God appears in the sky, right? That's, that's what we're thinking. And the New Testament comes in and says, hold on, pump the brakes, all right, for just a second. Look at Acts 2, 14-21. Again, we won't read it all, but we'll read some of it. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Pause right there. What, what, where is this? What, what is this? Acts 2 is Pentecost, right? What's happening at Pentecost? Well, tongues as of fire have appeared already over the disciples' head. Now Peter is beginning to preach his sermon in his own language, and people that are visiting for the Holy Day of Pentecost are hearing him in their language. So they're understanding the Holy Spirit's doing the interpretation. They are what other outsiders are watching appear to be drunk. And Peter says... Well, that's crazy. It's not even happy hour. It's nine o'clock in the morning, right? They're not drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon will be blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So according to Peter, The moon turned to darkness, the moon turned to blood, the sun turned to darkness, and all of that is fulfilled right now. How can that be? Well, the moon's not literally blood right now. The sun's not literally dark. But God is in the midst of vindicating himself. God is demonstrating to all the people who are right at this moment supposing everybody who is associated with him to be drunk. 
They're crazy. God is right now vindicating himself. Joel says at the beginning, hey, the locust, God's vindicating himself. Peter says, God's vindicating himself. These people hear me speaking in their language, a language I don't speak and don't know. How do you explain that? God is vindicating himself. The day of the Lord is coming, and a sign of that is he's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. What is the purpose of that? What is the purpose of it to do? Here's a hint. It's the same as it was in the day of Joel. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Peter, what do we do because of your preaching? Repent and be baptized. Right? Rend your hearts and not your garments. You've seen it. You've seen him pour out his spirit on all flesh. Therefore, tear your hearts. It's meant to accomplish the same thing that it was accomplishing in the day of Joel to bring about repentance before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But this is not just at Pentecost. All right? This is not just at Pentecost that this is happening. Paul picks up on this in Romans 10. This is in the middle of his argument here about the Lord's sovereignty. And, he, and what's happened now as a result of Christ. He mentions some, of, some similar things in Ephesians 2 and 3. I'd recommend you read those later. But he says here in Romans 10, 12 to 13, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Then look at what He does in 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is that a quotation from? You see the quotation marks there. What is it a quotation of? It's a quotation of Joel. What is Paul telling you who are now an observant reader of the Old Testament? Hey, wait a minute. I recognize that. That's from Joel. That falls right in the passage where he's talking about pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Paul is now in the midst of the church age where the gospel is being preached and people are coming to faith in Christ. By definition, what is coming to faith in Christ? Rending your hearts and not your garments. The moment where people come to faith in Christ, they're rending their hearts, they're repenting of their sins, and they're not going to be on the bad side of the day of the Lord. You follow me? They're not going to be facing the armies and the locusts. They're not going to be facing hell. They're now connected to and associated with God. So when the day of the Lord comes, they're going to be found in association with Him, which what does that mean? They're ultimately going to be ones that are vindicated, not the ones that are punished. So Paul says, actually, it's not just Pentecost. No, no. God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh right now. This is happening today. This is happening in the church age so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do they call on the name of the Lord? Well, he, say, he says, well, they can't call on the one they've never heard of. They can't hear unless someone preaches. How do they call on the name of the Lord? Well, here's how it works. The Lord has moved into your heart 
through the Spirit. He's changed your heart. And you go, man, I really believe this. This is crazy. This has changed my whole life, my whole outlook on everything. In fact, what that means for me is a lot of those things that I've partaken in before, bitterness, angst, hatred, all of those kinds of things, I'm putting away. I want to be part of God's community, His covenant people, through Christ. And now, what does that do in you but want to go to people who are filled with hatred and animus and angst and all kinds of bitterness and say, I need to tell you something. You need to hear the gospel. And this is what it is. It leads you to proclaim. And once you proclaim what happens to those people that are His, all of a sudden the Spirit moves into them, it, He rends their hearts, and they go, oh my goodness, my entire life has been changed. This is a completely radical new outlook on life. They begin to be a part of the covenant people as well, and they begin to do the same thing. All of a sudden, people after people come to Christ. That's why Jesus, when He leaves, says, go make disciples. Go everywhere. Make disciples. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell them the gospel. They're going to believe you're going to baptize them. Then you're going to teach them how to obey. And then, part of the obedience is they're going to go out and they're going to tell the gospel too. It's going to grow like that. And it does. It starts off as a mustard seed, then becomes the biggest plant in the garden. Right? It starts off in Jerusalem and then becomes all over the world. That's how it works. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And that's what he's saying here. That this is the entire church age. Kirsten mentioned earlier in her prayer request that the gospel divides. Well, that's also what it does. Because the proclamation of the gospel is judgment. It is proclaiming the day of the Lord. And there's going to be people that fall on both sides of the day of the Lord. Some are going to fall on this side. Some are going to fall on that. Some are going to be separated on the right. Some are going to be separated on the left. Some are going to go to hell, and some are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. Because that's what the gospel is going to do. It's not just going to tell people to repent, rend your hearts, and not your garments, and come into Christ. It's also going to repel people. They're going to ostracize you. They're going to hate you because of the message that you're presenting. But there will be a day where the Christian community is vindicated. And so what he's saying in Joel, is true of us now. It's the same kind of commandment that we are also called to in the church age. Turning to God from sin is a call to be obeyed at this very moment, to be obeyed right now. So God's pouring out His Spirit on all flesh at this very moment, and once He is finished, then the ultimate day of the Lord will come where it will be too late. Where He will appear and He will judge those who are sinners who have sinned against a moral God and have no Christ to atone for them their sins will be exposed and punished forever. Those that have associated with God through his son Christ, will be vindicated. Questions? I'm sure there are some. Go ahead, James. Uh, here, wait, let me get a microphone because it's people online. <laughs> they want to hear too. 
And sometimes I can't repeat what y'all say, and sometimes I don't want to repeat what y'all say. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> I just wanted to emphasize uh, your last statement about uh, for those who are uh, associated with God through his son, Christ, and it's, why is it that so many people uh, go for, it's, a, it's believing in God, but uh, never, they, they don't yeah. want Christ in the equation. It's, yeah. it's, and that's John 14, 6. Yeah. Do you say, I am the way, yeah. the truth, and life? I mean, he said, I, that's the way Jesus doesn't lie. Yeah. He can't lie. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It's, uh, they, they go, uh, I believe in God. Okay, yeah, I, that's, that's fine. Let's talk about Jesus. What, what do you do with him? Um, because it, it, there's lots of people that are willing to say, you know, I believe in God. What does that mean? James says the demons believe and, and tremble. I, I'm not impressed by that. Are you submitting to Christ's rule in your life? Not, you are no Christian. I don't know what you mean when you say Christian. Heather Henry, let me get you a microphone. First is more of a, just a simple question, sure. and then I have a thought to share. Um, before, the bl- the, before the blank that said partial fulfillment, what was that previous blank where it um, Saving says his presence. something? So where it says partial fulfillment, what was the blank right before that, his something? Saving presence. Saving presence. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with One for Israel, um, are you familiar with One for Israel? One it's a ministry out of Israel, um, Messianic Jews sharing sure. Christ within Israel with sure. their fellow countrymen. Sure. It's fascinating. Sure. You could just, I've binge watched some of sure. their videos. Um, and yeah. what they've said is during the pandemic that younger Jewish people, a lot of yeah. millennials, but kind of everybody in between, yeah. is more comfortable going online and seeking answers. And because of the, the pandemic, they were shut down. Nobody was out in their communities. I mean, they were locked down. And apparently the Israelis love to be on the internet more than anybody else in the world, is what they're saying. Right. But that they were spending, like they're getting 35 million views. Yeah. And they're tracking who's watching them. And people are coming to Christ in record numbers in Israel sure. simply because of the pandemic. Yeah. And many of the people that they'll read letters from or share have said, how have we missed this? How yeah. have we missed that? They'll hear the gospel and they'll think, well, that's what Christians believe. But then when they go and look right. in their Hebrew Bible, they're seeing, yeah. wait a minute, he's been there all along. How do we miss this? Yeah. It's fascinating to right, watch. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, again, there, there's, a, I think, a multitude of ways you can uh, think about the salvation of, of Jews. And um, uh, we won't get into all, all of those different things, but you know, I think uh, my view, I, th- I think this is supported by the New Testament as well, is that um, those Jews who are to be saved will come to faith in Christ. Um, and I think that's the only way. I think that's the only way that will be. Um, that's not necessarily shared amongst all evangelicals, that idea, but uh, much that I disagree with that, the uh, alternative views, well, it is what it is, you know, the disagreement. But yes, it's, it's fascinating and um, hopefully the Lord will continue to open eyes of, honestly, not, not just Jews, but Muslims is, is the biggest frontier at this moment. Um, so the biggest, you know, we live in a day and age where we can actually count the number of people who haven't heard the gospel, and the vast majority of them are in Muslim-speaking countries where you will be beheaded if caught. 
And so it's a danger to go there. And that's a frontier that we all know is waiting for us. And it's a difficult journey to go on, you know. And so, um, you know, there's some, just as an aside, just very quickly, I know we got to go, but um, this is part, thinking like a Christian in terms of global politics is really helpful when you start thinking like Republican and Democrat, very harmful to a Christian way of thinking. And here, here's why I, why I say that. Um, I, I've been in circles where, I'm not saying this is one, just saying I've been in circles where when there was a war in the Middle East and when Arabs were scattered abroad and they were coming, some of them were coming to America for shelter and things like this, quickly became a Republican-Democrat issue. There was immigrants coming in, and there was a, a battle between Republicans and Democrats. On the whole, I'm not just trying to scattershot here, but on the whole, Republicans were not wanting the immigrants to come in, and the um, Democrats were, and they all had political reasons why they wanted that, and I don't care about any of those reasons. Um, but one thing that discouraged me is that in the church, a lot of our lines got drawn along Republican-Democrat lines, and we didn't pause to think about the Christian ramifications of this immigration, that this was the first time we were able to reach these people without being beheaded. And because we got thrown into the debate of, between Republicans and Democrats, if we were seen to be in favor of the immigrat, immigrants coming over, we were liberal and Democrats, Right? And in Southern Baptist churches, I don't know if you know, but you can be shot for that, right? <laughs> so just broadly speaking. Uh, and so, but because it got thrown into that debate, we didn't stop to really think Christianly about it and say, I don't care about your politics. And honestly, if it brings about the ruin and the collapse of America because we let in people that don't have access to the gospel, but we were at the same time able to share the gospel with them, and they came to Christ, then that's good. And we as Christians had a hard time seeing that because everything became political and save America. And so when we think Christianly, gospel takes priority above everything else. And geopolitics don't matter really as much at all, if at all. Right. Our citizenship is in heaven. And yeah, so, you know, I want what's best for this country, always. I I, I do, and and I think I'm commanded to pray that way and to act that way, vote that way, things like that. But there are things that usurp that, and they are all in Christ's kingdom. Timothy, I think, has a... Does not the scripture say that all sin is first and foremost against God? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes. All right. Um, probably hasn't exhausted all the questions. That's fine. Hold on to them, think through them, work through them as we go through the Old Testament. Maybe even write them down and see if you maybe still have those questions later. Um, we will come back to these topics as we tackle more of the prophets. You can see how, and we're going to get into a lot crazier stuff than this. All right, so just buckle up as we go, all right? Uh, Let's pray for now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to just study your word and to look at it, uh, to examine it. 
I pray that what we say here and what we've studied and what we've said, what I've said, uh, would be true, uh, would magnify your name, would be um, sown into our hearts, if true, and followed and obeyed and thought about, that we might prioritize as your people the preaching of the gospel and the call to repentance, and that we may place all significance on the rending of hearts rather than garments, as you've called us to. And we pray that in our church, people would come to know Christ left and right, that you would bring the increase there, and that your um, mission to us uh, to make disciples would be fulfilled in our actions as we ourselves, from our own mouths, proclaim the gospel, share it with others, and disciple them, uh, teaching them to obey all that you've commanded us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.